Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I'll start the message in just a minute, but just a word about going pro. If you've been at New Spring for a long time, you know uh, what the going pro anthology is about. The first going pro series was in 2011. The second was 2014. Anytime we do a going pro series, it's about Proverbs, uh, the book of wisdom. But this year is something very, very special. I've always thought one of the greatest characters in the Bible to teach us about living our life, to coach us up, is Joseph in the Old Testament. So we're actually bringing out the life stories and the life lessons from Joseph along with Proverbs. So we're doing it right at the beginning of football season, so feel free to wear your football jerseys. I will be wearing some, I think, and Jonathan. Actually, we'll have a new spring jersey coming out. I've seen the drawing of it, or actually I've seen the photo of it, so it's going to be great. But that starts two weeks from this weekend, and it's just a great wisdom series. I cannot wait uh, to begin going pro uh, as we have a chance to talk about the life of Joseph. But, of course, this is the last message of the Worlds of Warfare 3, the weapons series. Spiritual warfare is something that every Christ follower should be engaged in. And, again, we know, and I'm I know I've told you this so many times, but I always am concerned that someone could hear that and think, wow, we're trying to be against other people. Well, it's just the opposite because spiritual warfare for a Christ followers never against people. The weapons that we fight with are not to hurt people. They're actually to do damage to the spiritual world, Satan and his demons. Well, I've already talked about that many times. So let me just go right into the verse that this series has been about. Second Corinthians 10, four, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So they're not material, and they're not the techniques and the, the things that people of this world do to try to get advantage over others. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Now that, you know, I really wish, I really have to come back and do another series on the weapons because there, there are more weapons that I didn't get to. I, I wish I'd spent more time talking to you about this. I, I tried to always emphasize it every time I read the verse. But the weapons that we fight with have divine power. So many times Christians fight with weapons that they have in their own power. And a lot of times we don't recognize the divine power that's available to us. In fact, that's going to be really important to us tonight. But the weapons that we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. That means to tear down something that Satan has built up. Oh, that was worth coming for tonight. To tear down Satan, something Satan has built up. Because he builds up strongholds. We see them in our culture. We see them in families. We see them in entertainment. Lord knows we're even seeing them in religion. I can't believe the stuff that's being taught in some churches today. It's so demonic. So we have to understand we're in the last days. We're fighting spiritual warfare, and we need to fight with spiritual weapons. Well, as I shared with you last week, I I hadn't intended to talk about this particular theme as a weapon because I'm not sure I recognized that it was a weapon until I was reading 1 Peter 4.1 where the Bible tells us that we are to weaponize ourselves with the attitude of Christ. And last week I began the talk with the theme that the right attitude is a weapon that freezes Satan. Let me say that one more time. A right attitude is a weapon that will stop Satan. It is a Satan stopper. Last week, I shared with you three thoughts. I said attitudes are filters. They're the filters through which we look at the facts. Everybody sees the same facts. 
but attitudes are the filters through which we look at the facts. The second thing we saw last week is that Satan is all about takeover, and he wants to take over areas of your life and allow a, or to, uh, to, to encourage you to have a bad attitude, to encourage me to have a bad attitude. And then we saw, right before we stopped the first half of the message, we saw that the way to have a right attitude was simple, but almost nobody will do it. And that is coming to the place where we say, God, I'm wrong and you're right. Not, God, I did something wrong. Most of us will say that. When we do something wrong that's pretty obvious, we'll, we'll say that we did wrong. What we typically won't say is, God, my settings are in the wrong place. My, my viewpoints, the way I look at life is wrong. But when we do come to that place, then we have an opportunity to have the right kind of attitude. But I have to be so clear on something tonight, and it's simply this. What we're talking about here is way more than what the world calls a good attitude. Hey, I, I do talks for Christian organizations. I do talk for secular corporations. And I do talk from time to time about the importance of having a good attitude. And there's a place for that. But you've already had a lot of good messaging about a good, positive mental attitude. You've heard things like life is 10% what happens, 90% how we react. That's true. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the attitude that stops Satan. You know, I, there, there, there's a lot of humor that we've heard about good attitudes. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to hear the joke about the guy who went to the doctor and told the doctor that, he, you know, he just knew he was dying and he needed to be examined. And the doctor examined him. And, and uh, before he examined him, he said, uh, why, why, why do you believe you're dying? He said, everywhere I touch, it hurts. If I touch my shoulder, it hurts. If I touch my head, it hurts. If I touch my back, it hurts. If I touch my leg, I know I'm dying because everywhere I touch, it hurts. Well, doctor, after examining him, came back and said, I have good news and bad news for you. Good news, you're not dying. Bad news, you have a broken finger. Well, I mean, that's kind of a <laughs> kind of corny joke. And there's several different variations on that. There's the woman who went to all the different places and said, hey, it stinks in here. Everywhere she went, it stunk. And yet she realized when she got home, she'd stepped in something. So she was carrying the bad smell with us. Now, we've all heard that kind of stuff. And I've taught that kind of thing. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about something else. And it is important to have a good attitude, but it's not, having a good attitude will not neutralize Satan in your life. And here's the thing, people that don't know Christ, who don't have Jesus living inside can still have a good positive mental attitude. So when we talk about having an attitude that neutralizes Satan, when the Bible says weaponize yourself with this attitude, what are we talking about? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 where we began to look at this idea of our attitude being a weapon. Okay, here we go. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm, we saw last week that term means literally weaponize, yourselves with the same attitude he had. So we're not just talking about a good positive mental attitude here. We're talking about the attitude of Jesus. Just so that we'll understand that this is a biblical concept, let me now move to a different author. That was Peter. Now we're going to talk about Paul. Uh, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to spend some time here at the end of this message because Philippians is, the whole book is pretty much about having a Christ-like attitude. But in Philippians 2.5, Paul said, have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So again, I hope you understand my heart tonight. I'm, I, and there's nothing in the world wrong and everything right with having a good attitude. It's important when we talk about having a good attitude the way the world talks about it, that's beneficial. And I'm, I'm so for it. I teach on it. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're saying 
from the scriptures that the attitude that neutralizes Satan is the attitude of Jesus. We've got our work cut out for us tonight. So let's go to work. I said this to Mary Alice, I said this to Billy Poor, my executive pastor, I said, I have seen this concept in scripture for years, but I've never preached on it. Just, I, it's so big, I've almost stepped back from preaching it, but tonight, for the first time, I'm going to preach it. What is it about the attitude of Jesus that's a devil beater? Tonight, if you walk out of here and you determine that you're going to have the attitude of Christ, you're going to kick the devil's backside. So what is it? Why does it work? First answer, Satan can't understand it or comprehend it. It's, it's like it confuses him. See, here's the thing that we have to get. Satan is not God's equal. I know I have friends who are non-theists, and they will say, oh, okay, you invented a God, so you have to invent an opposite and equal foe. And I'm like, no, I haven't. First of all, I didn't invent God. God invented me. And secondly, I didn't, I didn't invent Satan. I, I, would, don't, I don't want him to be here. Trust me. If, I, if, I, if it had just been an invention of my own thought, I would not have had him here. But here's the thing. He is not God's equal. God created him. He was an angel that went rogue. So he's not God's equal. He, and because he's thoroughly corrupted by sin, he has blind spots. He's a very powerful angel. I think he may have been and or the archangel, but with sin comes ignorance and darkness, and he cannot figure the attitude of Christ out. New Spring, this is beautiful. This is worth coming tonight. The Bible indicates that Satan is the author of confusion. When you have the attitude of Christ, you confuse the author of confusion. That's huge. I mean, he's, he's the one who uses confusion to get, and I was just listening to an expert saying, you know, it was, this expert was talking about why uh, the tobacco companies were so effective, even though everybody knew that tobacco caused cancer. And this expert in that field said, they didn't have to convince people that tobacco didn't cause cancer. They just had to confuse them. Well, Satan does all the confusion in the world, and yet when you have the attitude of Christ, you confuse the author of confusion. So why is someone so smart as Satan unable to comprehend the attitude of Christ? Very simple. He doesn't believe the attitude of Christ exists. You go back in time, and you read about Satan before God created Adam and Eve, and we see Satan in the book of Ezekiel before, uh, before the world was created. We see him rebel against heaven. We see the same thing in the book of Isaiah. We'll have a quote from Jesus in just a moment where Jesus will say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We know what happened. He was the angel. It looked like he was in charge of worship in heaven, but he got full of himself and decided that God shouldn't have all the glory, and he got tired. He felt that God was over over. over uh, overbearing. And for me personally, this is just me talking. We'll see when we get to heaven if I'm right on this. I really believe he resented God's plan for Jesus. So he rebelled against authority. And as I said a moment ago, he doesn't know everything. He's fully corrupted. So consequently, he has blind spots in his mind. 
And I'm going to prove this in just a moment. So let me just lay this down. I've never preached this tonight uh, until tonight. In his mind, he's right. And everybody thinks like him. He is convinced you think like him. And by the way, this is why somebody with a bad attitude is so much like Satan. I talked about this last week. I said, you know, if someone has a bad attitude, there's just really not a whole lot you can do for that person. And the reason for that is a person who has a bad attitude is really behaving very much like Satan. Have you ever noticed that someone who has a really bad attitude, they tend to be sarcastic and mocking and scornful? And they tend to use put-downs, and here's why. Because deep down inside, they think your good attitude is phony. They don't understand your good attitude. So consequently, if you have a good attitude and you're around somebody with a bad attitude, this is the reason why they put you down. This is the reason why they're mocking. This is why they're sarcastic. Because they think everybody thinks like they do, and they're just waiting for you to get real. Now you say, Mark, how would you know this from the Bible? Going to prove it right here. The old debater in me, I'm used to laying down a plank and then bringing in the evidence. So here we go. Here is how I know that Satan thinks you think just like he does. Book of Job, chapter one. The angels are showing up in heaven and Satan shows up among them. We, we believe, I personally believe that Job is the earliest chronologically written book of the Bible. Obviously, there's earlier chronological history in the Pentateuch in the book of, of uh, Genesis, but I think Job is the first book written in the Bible. So Satan shows up, and he's there to accuse, because that's what his name means. He is the accuser. And God says to Satan, have you, have you checked out my boy Job? Have you noticed, you know, you're always here accusing people, but have you checked out Job? I mean, Job was a wonderful man. He was a rich guy and God had blessed him, but he didn't just live his life in conspicuous consumption. He's good to people. I mean, if you see his Bentley in the neighborhood, he's delivering groceries to somebody that's sick. God, no, no wonder God said, have you checked out my boy Job? Now watch with me. Satan retorted. So do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, nobody ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. He can't lose. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took everything away? And he said, he'd curse you right to your face. That's what he'd do. And that's how Satan feels about you and me. See, he's got a bad attitude. And he just doesn't think, he doesn't even think the attitude of Christ even exists. Now let's go a little deeper because no place do we see this more than in the earthly life of Jesus on the earth. I mean, when you open the Bible, the Bible is not a book of religion, it's a plan. You ever hold a set of plans in your hand? And some of you are builders, you know what it's like, or you, 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 you work in the factory where you work and you have, you have a schematic, you have a set of plans. That's what this is. This is what this book is. This is, this is God's plan. I mean, the thing of it is Adam and Eve sinned and because they sinned, they gave birth to the rest of us and we were all born in a fallen state and God had to come up with a plan. He didn't have to, but he did. He came up with a plan to rescue us and redeem us. This book is God's plan to redeem flawed, broken people like you and me. And if you want to read that plan, the first time it's spelled out, you can find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's when God's confronting Adam and Eve and Satan after the first sin. And here's what God said to Satan. He said, he, 
will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. Well, striking at your heel, that doesn't feel good, but you can get over that. Crushing your head is something else. And so God was saying to Satan, I know what you did. You fouled up my creation. Sure, I put my man and my woman on the earth and you got them to do what you wanted them to do. But I'm telling you, devil, that the day is coming when somebody's going to come along and you're going to strike at his heel and he's going to crush your head. (laughs) It's that crushing head thing that keeps Satan up nights. And he knew, watch me, New Spring, he knew who the he was. When God said, he will crush your head, Satan knew who God was talking about. Because you see, Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. By the way, we have a great Christmas series called up, coming up called Put Yourself in a Picture. I wish I could talk to you about that, but I'm in a sermon right now. <laughs> but when I get there, it'll be the biggest thing we've ever been part of. You can... <laughs> see, Satan and Jesus had history. Jesus is the second member of the Godhead. So when Jesus was on the earth, he just lets this drop to his disciples. He said, I I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was like, you know, the day that he was kicked out, I watched it. So when God says to Satan, he will crush your head, Satan knows who he's talking about. And he knows he's no man. Oh, this is so important. I I get chills when I think about what I'm about to say to you because I've never preached this before, but it's been on my heart. He knows he's no match for Jesus, but he's got an ace up his sleeve. No way. Because remember, Satan thinks, he, everybody thinks like him. No way in the world Jesus will leave his throne in heaven and come down to earth. I mean, Satan knows what goes on down here. No way. No way in the world he will leave behind the glory of heaven and come down here. No way. No, no way. He, he knows what we're like. He's the accuser of them. No way in the world he'll live with sinners. That guy, Peter, <laughs> you think he's going to hang with him for three years? No way in the world that he's going to. Zacchaeus, I mean, guys, he's a thief. And the woman taken in adultery, everybody knows she was sleeping with somebody else when they found her. Jesus. Satan's like, no, no way that the Holy Son of God who is up in, up in heaven, and we know this from Isaiah chapter 6, that the angels say over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Satan's like, no way in the world you're going to come down here and hang with people like Mark Hoover. No way he'll sleep on the ground with no house of his own. And surely Satan thought, surely he knows if he divests himself of his glory, surely he knows Satan is going to exploit his humanity and throw the book at him. So no way. Satan feels like that crush the head thing sounds bad, but no way in the world is he going to do that. But then came that manger in Bethlehem. You know, by the way, New Spring, this is why Satan and his followers stamp their tiny feet and throw a hissy fit over Christmas. Satan thought it never happened, but it did. So now he's got another idea. He's human now. Jesus is human. And remember, he thinks everybody thinks like he does. So this is not Satan's first rodeo with humans. I mean, there was another time when God put humans on the earth, Adam and Eve, And Satan, you know, he came and he tempted them and then they sinned against God. And Satan's like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it all the time. They're just like me. And then you and I came along and the other billions of people came along and we all sinned. Satan's like, 
I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Everybody thinks like I do. So now he's got Jesus where he wants him. Jesus is human. So one day, Jesus, after, being fast, after fasting for 40 days, he's hungry. And Satan came along and he thought, hey, I pulled the food thing on the first human beings. So I guess I'll start there. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Command these stones to be made bread. No cell. Well, Satan's like, you know, I know you. I have people down here, like disciples of yours, they don't, they don't know you like I know you. And the people down here, the Pharisees and the people that hate your guts, they're like, Satan's like, I know who you are. I know the kind of power you have. Hey, you know what you could do? You know what you could do to get everybody's attention and so they would give you their props? Because that's what Satan wants, you know. One, he took him up to this pinnacle of the temple and he said, hey, throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. I'd be very impressive. Be on the news. No sell. Satan's like, okay, I know what you're here for. I know all the kingdoms of the world belong to me, and you're here to get them back. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You don't have to go to the cross. <laughs> you know what? Nobody should have to suffer. So you shouldn't have to go to the cross. Tell you what, tell you what, I have I, I, such a deal I have for you. If you will fall down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. No cell. One more trick up his sleeve. You know, uh, someone could turn down going to the cross when it's months away, but what if you're just a few hours away? You know, let people get right up against suffering, and you know what? They'll cave. They'll fold like a cheap suit. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's weak. He's, he's under so much stress that there's blood coming out of his pores. And he feels, he feels the cold chill of God already beginning to put, the Father being, putting distance between. See, here's the thing. You think Jesus' ultimate suffering were the nails in his hands? That was bad enough, but the suffering that Jesus feared the most was when the Father would turn his back on the Son and leave him to die alone because he carried the sin of the world. And Satan is like, you know, that's hours away now. Now let's see how he feels about it. And in Gethsemane, Satan pulled out at the last stops to try to stop him from going to the cross because Satan said he'll never go to a cross. But just a few hours later on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, Satan was forever ruined, and he never saw it coming. He didn't believe it would happen. New Springers, there is something about the attitude of Christ that Satan cannot grasp, and that makes it cosmically powerful against him. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I hear Christians say things like, well, I'm just going to bind Satan. I'm going to take authority over Satan. Let, let, let me be just real honest with you. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, I guess, other than if you want to take authority over Satan, you just come with me and I'll take you to some hospitals tonight, and you just take authority over him there. See, the thing about it is saying those kinds of things are pretty easy. Having the attitude of Christ really does do that to him. But then we got to take, take a look at our hearts. Let me give you the second thought tonight. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's critical to Satan that he mess up your attitude. 
I mean, when Satan puts a target on you and me, the bullseye of that target is my attitude and your attitude. Because see, here's the thing. He, he, he now knows it exists. He's, he's seen Jesus. So consequently, what, what does he want to do if he wants to just neutralize you? What, what, if he wants to just take you out and make you no threat to him at all, he's got to go after your attitude. Oh, I wish I had time to teach this. this is, you remember a few weeks ago I talked to you about how that we are three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and how that when we're born into the world, we're born spiritually dead. That part of us that is a communication apparatus for communication of, with God is dead, and then that part comes back to life when we accept Christ. Now, here's the thing. This is what I want to teach you tonight. Since you are, those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your spirit is alive. And you now have that, you have that capability to communicate with God and for God to communicate with you. But you also still have your fallen nature, as I do. That's why we have this head-button battle going on all the time. Really big. Satan speaks the language of your fallen nature. So consequently, if he wants to work in our lives, he's going to work in that part of us that John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He talks the language. There is a part of me that Satan speaks the language. He resonates with that part, and that part of me resonates with him. But he can't talk to our spirits. Now, last week, we talked about attitudes as being filters. But we have a whole bunch of those filters. And, and if you think about it this way, it's like all of our filters become an operating system. We, we might call that an attitude. So what Satan wants to do is he wants to screw up our operating system. And remember this. If you're a Christ follower, he's not trying to get you to worship Satan, at least openly. He wants you to, here is the thing. He, if Satan is going to take us out and shut us down and be no threat to him, He's got to get us to focus on self. He doesn't care if you go to New Spring Church. He doesn't care if you sing about Jesus. He doesn't like it. I mean, even if you enjoy sermons from the Bible, he doesn't like that, but he can live with that. And even if you agree with what the Bible says and you put likes on social media when someone posts something that's true, he doesn't like that, but he's okay with it as long as he can get you to do one thing. Believe the right thing, but be focused on yourself. You know, i got to be honest. As I thought about this message and prepared for it, I thought this has too often been me. I believe the right things, but my attitude has been pretty self-focused at times. Did someone hurt my feelings? Am I getting the respect that I deserve? Am I being treated like I deserve to be treated? You know, the weird thing about that is, I'm just being honest with you. I probably have as good an attitude as anybody you know. In fact, that's one of the things that people say about me that know me closely is, Mark is gracious and kind, has a good attitude. But I'm going to tell you something. Satan is not intimidated by that. But what if I decided 
that I was going to have the attitude of Christ. You know that attitude that Jesus had that just wiped him out? What if I decided I was going to have the attitude of Christ? I know the answer to that question. I've already read it in the Bible. Strongholds would come down. I mean, do we hear that tonight in New Spring? I mean, if we have the attitude of Christ, strongholds will come down. See, the problem is we want to believe the right things but still be about self, and then the stronghold is there, and we're like, well, I tried that thing, and it didn't work. No. Well, let's talk about that as I close out the message. Let's just look at the attitude of Christ. I said that it's in Philippians, but especially in chapter 2 because it's in chapter 2, verse 5, where the Bible says, have the same attitude that Christ had. So let me give you four things that I see in Philippians 2, and I'm not even going to teach these tonight. At least I'm not going to go at length. I want you to take these home with you and think about it. Okay, number one. Number one, Jesus did not have an attitude of entitlement. Whoa. That would sure be contradictory to the average 21st century American, right? Because we live in a world that feels very entitled. But listen to this, in Philippians 2 verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or literally grasp after. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. You remember last week I shared with you that we've been groomed to have a bad attitude? Well, if the attitude of Christ is to give up entitlements, then obviously you and I have been groomed to be entitled. And Satan loves that. He can wreak havoc in that climate. Look at our nation. Look at marriages today. Look at families. All he has to do, I mean, even if I'm a Christ follower and believe the Bible and Lord of God, but if I have a sense of entitlement, hey, Satan's got a field day in my life. Strongholds, they're going to be everywhere. Could I have a few extra minutes tonight? I want to talk to parents right now and grandparents and leaders. What if those of us who led and parented thought about the fact that we have a lot of people following us and then our attitude would be consistent with that? I was telling my granddaughter's story the other day. I, I've done over a thousand funerals and so I've, done, I've been in a lot of funeral processions. I mean, I can't tell you. And funeral processions, you know, you have to keep your, keep your head in the game because you're, you're going 20 miles an hour down the road and you don't have to worry about red lights or all that because uh, police are, are blocking traffic. The only problem is I've been in funeral processions that lasted 45 minutes. And, and you know, your mind can wonder. I mean, I've even, I hate to admit this, I've even talked on the phone to staff, talked about different things. This didn't happen to me, but it could have happened to me. You know, your, your, your mind, a, a pastor was in a funeral procession behind the hearse. That's where they always put us because we have to be there at the graveside. And he, he lost his concentration and he saw Walmart. <laughs> and he got thinking about something that his wife needed. And he, before he realized, he just turned into Walmart. <laughs> and while he's just about to pull into a parking place, he looked at his rearview mirror and there's a long line of cars with their lights on. <laughs> That's a true story. And parents and grandparents, leaders, we need to realize that the importance here is that we are leading in this climate. And Jesus 
demonstrated his attitude that defeated Satan by not having an attitude of entitlement. Number two, let's go to the second thing real quickly. <laughs> oh boy, that, can, we, can we do that first one? Probably can, okay. I think we can do that. How about this one? He didn't complain and argue. How do I know that? Let's go down to verse 14. Do everything. Oh, I wish that word wasn't there sometimes. Do everything without complaining and arguing, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. How many of us as Christ followers, including myself, if we, if we were honest, we do more complaining than we realize. See, Jesus didn't do that. I mean, if anybody ever had a right to complain, he did. But he also didn't argue. He was gracious. Have you noticed, especially in this age of social media, that people seem unable to just let things go? I mean, you know, you see smart people, important people, and someone will make some comment on one of their comment threads, and the next thing you know, this smart person is bringing out the bazookas, and you're wondering, can, can, can we just kind of let things go every once in a while and say, I don't have to respond to that? Hey, you're a child of God. You can afford to be generous. Your father owns a cattle on 10,000 hills. You've already been promised everlasting life. You're told that in all things God works for good. You can afford to let some stuff go. You don't have to respond to I don't have to respond to everybody. I mean, by the way, sometimes silence is eloquent. Okay, I've got to hurry. Number three, can we, can we do that? Okay, no entitlement. Do everything without complaining. I lost some of you at number two. You're like... And, and the devil doesn't think you can do it either, so. Number three, he focused on others and not himself. Philippians 2, 3, same chapter. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Someone has said there are two, two, two different kinds of people, and you can always tell by their attitude when they walk into a room. There's one group of people that walk into a room with the attitude, here I am. And then there are the people that walk into the room with the attitude, there you are. Number four, he served. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus served. In fact, the Bible says he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. This neutralizes Satan. Now I pray that every married person here would go home and put on the attitude of Jesus because strongholds could come down. Every parent, every Christ follower. Have you ever thought about the fact that the thing that gets us into heaven is the blood of Jesus? I mean, when Jesus came into our world, 
He sacrificed and paid the price for our sin by giving up everything he had and dying on the cross for us. If you're a Christ follower, we need to think about that tonight. And if you're not a Christ follower, if you've never known for sure that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you need to recognize that the attitude of Jesus was that he would do anything for you. You know, one of the, I didn't get to talk about this weapon. I want to sometime. The Bible tells us about the people who beat Satan in the book of Revelation. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth and not only give everything up, but then die on a cross and shed his blood that you could have everlasting life. Wow, that's great. In fact, the way to get into heaven is to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and to receive his attitude for you. Here's what the Bible says. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And his blood is what secures your salvation. And no matter who you are, if you're here on the campus or watching online or watching on television, if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you can celebrate his attitude, his willingness to die for you by praying and receiving him to be your savior. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer that celebrates the blood of Jesus, that invites him into our lives. And if you want to pray this with me, say, Mark, I want to be sure I'm going to heaven. Well, the way you can know for sure is by accepting Jesus and his sacrifice that he made for you. And I'm going to pray this prayer. If you want to, you can pray it with me. I'll pray it slowly, and then you can decide if you want to pray this to God. Dear God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Thank you that he gave up everything for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.